0: Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. And I'm Dr. Phil Chan. Welcome, everyone. And Dr. Chan, great to be with you again this afternoon. And we have our guest today, our own Britton Bates Manny of the Rhode Island Department of Health. We're going to talk a little bit about medical countermeasure distribution, which indeed is a mouthful. Uh, so if you're someone who does not know what medical countermeasure distribution is, trust me, it is not as boring as it sounds, and it is something you will enjoy learning about today. Britain, as we get underway here, it's been fun to work with you during the pandemic. It's one of the fun things about the pandemic, getting to work more closely with more people here at the Department of Health. But you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what do you do?
1: Thanks, Dr. McDonald and Dr. Chan. It's great to be with you guys too. It's nice to see you. It's been a little crazy. Um, Yes, so I am Britton Bates Manny. I have been working in the Department of Health for about 14 or 15 years on emergency mass dispensing related to medical countermeasures. I do not have a medical degree. I want to be very clear. My master's is counseling and my undergrad is in organizational communications but those two things worked very well for what I do for the Department of Health. Yeah, medical countermeasures, it is a mouthful. Um, it is basically stuff, uh, whether that's pills, vaccine, um, personal protective equipment, things that we might need, that the public might need, or medical professionals might need uh, in the event of a significant emergency.
2: So thank you, Britt, so much. much for joining us. Uh, to our listeners out there, you know, Britt is one of those people. At the health department, who has really been one of those heroes behind the scenes? So, thank you, Britain, so much for your work. I just want to state that out loud. Uh, we are lucky to have you. Uh, medical countermeasures. I mean, it. You know, it sort of almost sounds like warfare. And I guess if you think about infectious diseases, it almost is. But give us an example, if you will, give us a non-COVID example. I think all we do is talk about COVID sometimes, I feel like, but give us a a non-COVID example of what this looks like.
1: Medical countermeasures is the state's plan, and every state has a plan like this for how we might have goods or supplies or handle surges in in emergency that need some sort of medical assistance uh, that goes beyond traditional partners, beyond your doctor's office, beyond the pharmacy, um, when there are surges. So for years, we've had a warehouse that has some personal protective equipment. We have stockpiled some things like Tamiflu after the H1N1 flu uh, many years ago, swine flu, as it was commonly called back then. When we have done other things for medical countermeasures, we have dealt with really uh, crazy stuff like Bats. We've had numerous uh, both high school events and college events that have had overnights in areas where there have been bats flying around. And if the students and the teachers don't leave those areas, there's a chance that there could be a bat bite or or, or drool and exposure to rabies. So we've done some uh, pretty interesting random responses to make sure that all of those students and teachers got prophylaxis. Another word, right? Getting the getting pills or vaccine to ensure you don't get sick.
0: So Britt, let's talk a little bit about even before COVID-19, what are some of the outbreaks that your team responded to it? I mean, if there's any interesting ones that come top of mind here for this.
1: We had a meningitis outbreak at a college in in Rhode Island where we very quickly uh, on a weekend vaccinated the entire undergraduate uh, student body of a college to ensure that those students would not get meningitis. It was uh, between snowstorms and hockey games. Very exciting weekend on that. Couch. I
0: actually remember that weekend, I do. I was there for both you of that. I was, but it was meningitis type B. It was, uh, it, was, it was different because it wasn't what was expected and yet it was rare. But that was one of the things I thought was pretty interesting was responding uh, to an outbreak with vaccine It was very tangible, very relevant, a type of thing that I think really very much what you'd want a health department to mobilize and do. It was impressive to me. I mean, we're talking about vaccinating thousands of college students over a weekend and and really doing it more than once because it was a multi-shot series. I remember that well.
1: Exactly. And not long before that, we had an interesting situation. A uh, woman had traveled from a foreign country where measles is more common or common, period, could be, had traveled here, developed measles along the way. A very astute doctor in Rhode Island diagnosed the woman with measles. And we had to deal with uh, everybody that she had met along the way, traveling from an airport in New Jersey to Rhode Island, the hotel in Rhode Island. And we had to handle working with all of the staff in Rhode Island to find out if they Had uh, the shot already, or needed a titer's test, or needed the the vaccine to prevent them getting ill. So, who ran into her in the elevator? Who cleaned her room? It was fascinating.
2: Yeah, thank you, Brynn, for that. And I I guess uh, just to bring it back to current times and and COVID, you know, the countermeasures uh, program had thought about pandemics before. So we're thinking about H one N one. You know, we had that a number of years ago. But you know, COVID, uh, I guess as a pandemic in general, didn't catch us by surprise, I feel like it really just overwhelmed us. But I don't know, maybe you can comment on that. You know, in terms of your experience and the preparing that not just Rhode Island had done, but we as United States, why were we so overwhelmed? Why did it catch us so off guard?
1: That's a great question. So most of the planning that we have always done assumes that we had vaccine or we had treatment for the disease. Because this was a new and novel disease and we didn't have those things at first, we really had to practice everything else like the social distancing, mask wearing, PPE so you didn't catch it, but still keeping urgent medical services running. So that was part of the concern. The other concern is that this has gone on for so long. Most of our planning is based on quickly dealing with something or preventing something. And we had always planned on you might stand up for a day, a week, a month, and then we're sort of out of it. Maybe two doses of a vaccine a month apart from each other or something, and then we're out of it. We are beginning our third year of this response. So that whole extended longevity is very different. In addition, most of our planning had been that we would have plenty of supply of what we needed to take care of ourselves. And when the entire world is looking for the same thing at the same time, that became a very significant challenge.
0: And that really is the story of the pandemic in many ways. It's the entire world looking for the same thing at the same time. One of the things I remember was when we were trying to get personal protective equipment for healthcare workers, just trying to get N95 masks, how big a challenge that was. Because quite frankly, we were counting on the strategic national stockpile and we were a bit surprised to find that we got that 25%, you know, allotment, like that was it. There wasn't anything else coming. And you know, I kind of said to myself, you know, when it came to N95 masks, we as a nation did not get caught with our pants down. We just weren't wearing pants. I mean, that was one of those things where it's like, you know, hey, we didn't have them. And it's not like I'm blaming anybody because, you know, when you're a government, you've got to make decisions. And this wasn't something they were investing in. So hopefully we're investing for the future so we don't have issues. I want to pivot now to the vaccine rollout. You know, just the first dose of vaccine was given in Rhode Island December 14th. 2019, which pretty much impressed me, by the way, like less than a year from patient number one, really about 10 months in, we gave a dose of vaccine, which, you know, that's amazing that the companies, you know, were able to do that Pfizer in particular, Moderna right after it. But you had a big role in our vaccine rollout. And early on, early on, we had a very tight, constrained supply issue. So how did the Rhode Island Department of Health prioritize groups for vaccine eligibility when supply was low and demand was high? What was that all about?
1: That's a great question, and believe it or not, that is something that we have planned for. We always knew that we might have to do sort of slow rollouts if, if there was something. So we had already made some tentative groupings in case we ever had to use that, and we certainly hope we never had to, but we did, and the stories were horrific. First, we went right after our protecting our medical industry. We want to make sure that our hospitals, our healthcare system, our first responders, our EMFs. We wanna make sure our frontline people were protected as quickly as we could. If we don't want the frontline people, we've got no one to take care of the sick. So that was the first thing. The second thing was going after our oldest folks here in the state and our traditionally more vulnerable population. So we, we went to protect our oldest people first, believe it or not, starting as high as the age of 75. So we were looking for everybody who is 75 and up when we felt like we had sort of gotten to a threshold there. We were still filling every single vaccine slot. As soon as we made them, we started lowering it to 70, then to 65, then to 60. So we went healthcare, oldest, most vulnerable folks, other medically fragile people uh, were shortly after that. A lot of special focus went on for people who had different disabilities that might be dramatically affected by this disease. Then we quickly went into the rest of healthcare, maybe not frontline healthcare, but even into provider offices. And we and we slowly kept working down our list. Teachers were high up on there since uh, children could not be vaccinated early on, and we wanted to make sure that there was coverage in, in classrooms. And we kept working our way down uh, through industries. And ages.
2: Yeah, and Bryn, I remember that time uh, as I'm sure you, you know. We all of us at the health department do. You know, it, it was one of the most frustrating times because we finally had a vaccine, which is very exciting, by the way but uh, we just could not meet demand. And of course the physician in me wanted to give it to everyone uh, and we just couldn't. And we had to prioritize, which was not easy. And there was really no easy answers and it was really a no-win situation. Uh, but I think to your point, we prioritize our healthcare workforce who if we hadn't vaccinated, they wouldn't be able to take care of people that were sick and more people would have likely died. And then of course we prioritize people that were were at higher risk. But once we got The supply in and uh, that issue became less of a problem. Uh, We started engaging people. We set up some vaccination sites and community clinics, and you were on the front line with that. What did that process look like?
1: It started out very chaotic. Very truthfully, it was really chaotic. Just before the demand loosened up a little bit, we had some crazy stories like people sharing private links with other people, um, sort of cutting the line, and trying to figure out if we were going, going to stop that cutting the line. We had a a car dealership that got the link and shared it with all their partners. We had a a local retail group share it. We had a particular school system that started sharing it before we were doing the teacher. So there were a lot of sort of crazy stories. The one thing I will tell you is everybody rats somebody else out in Rhode Island. So when somebody thinks they're cutting the line, someone else is going to report them. And uh, so that's, we unfortunately spent far too much time playing around with tricky situations like that. Very quickly after that, however, things started opening up and we did our darndest to make sure that we never wasted a dose at all of these events. We were using the mass snack sites that we created that were sending hundreds or thousands of people through an hour. We were doing uh, working with all the municipal partners to open up what we call pods, points of dispensing, In every municipality in the state, we were using other mobile partners, providers to go out into community groups, churches, uh, sporting centers to help vaccinate people right where they are. We really changed from if you build it, they will come to finding people where they were and getting out to where everybody was.
0: That's a really good way to put it. it. It wasn't really just if you build it, they will come. It's finding it finding people where they were. And it's funny, like you remind me about when we were trying to save every single dose, squeeze every last viable dose. One of the stories I remember was going up to one of our mass vaccination sites because there was a question about, we were supposed to get 10 doses out of a vial and you could get 11, but somebody was getting nine. And we're wondering, why are we consistently getting nine doses out there? And when I went there and actually looked at the equipment they were using, because there was a shortage of everything and you were using different syringes, but it was the hub of the needle. And the hub of the needles, the part where the metal part connects to the plastic part, it was just a little bit bigger. So there was a waste, a tiny bit of waste, but it was costing us a dose. So what we ended up doing was not using a certain needle, but it was this type of micromanagement we were doing to literally squeeze every single dose so we could literally vaccinate as many people as possible. And I think, you know, it, it just is important to understand that this was a very stressful time. You know, what's interesting, that was April 25th is really when we saw supply of vaccine Really outpaced demand at that point. And part of why I say that is when you really think about it, our first dose was December 14th, April 25th, really not that much longer. All of a sudden, we have supply outstripping demand, which is kind of interesting to me. And, and it really gets this larger issue. So and I want to go a little bit more now and talk a little about health disparities. So it was incredibly important to make sure we're addressing health disparities in our distribution plan early on. We made sure vaccine was available in some of our hardest hit communities. We're still seeing vaccine cold spots in some of those areas today. So, what are vaccine cold spots and what is our team doing to address those?
1: Thanks. Those are great questions. So, vaccine cold spot is where the people who live in that neighborhood have a lower uptake than other neighborhoods and then the state average as a whole. We typically find that in Rhode Island. We were finding that in high density communities, which are the cities where there's many more people per square foot or per household that are there so uh, we we definitely had one municipality right off the bat that was experiencing COVID-19 at much higher levels than everybody else so that first December that we started giving out the vaccine is uh that particular municipality was really really hard hit and at the same time that we were diverting, uh, that we were supplying all the healthcare workers, the frontline staff, we had to start supplying that particular municipality with vaccine, or else we knew that 100% of that population could be
0: ill, could get- I remember population that, population I, I, I remember that. Population. We were we were looking at those numbers, and I remember at one point someone saying, we were looking at projection showing 100% of Central Falls is gonna be infected by January. And we started distributing High quality masks back then, you know, well, well before it was popular. But really, we we're still having issues with some of these cities as cold spots. What do you make of that?
1: We're working right now to figure out what what drives the hesitancy in those areas because we know there's plenty of availability now. We're in every na- we've been in every neighborhood, we're continuing to be in every neighborhood, and we're gonna focus on those high dose, uh, those high density areas. However, having said that. We definitely recognize there is a language barrier in those coldest spots. So we're working on engaging, we've done this all along to be clear, but re-engaging with medical professionals who speak other languages besides English, so that these folks in these particular cold spots can relate to whoever they're listening to, and they can get legit medical advice. So we know that we've got a couple churches in some areas, that are telling them they don't need vaccine because the blood of Jesus and the blood of God is going to cover them, which is really, really scary. So we're working on that to make sure that the right information is out there, that there's not misinformation. In addition, as we all know, and you know, we have all dealt with non-stop changes as we learn more information about the disease. This is a new disease, so every day we're learning more. The CDC changes the guidance, Then the state changes the guidance and the schools change the guidance. So we are nonstop pushing out new guidance. What is the eligibility between boosters? Do you get a third dose if you're immunosuppressed? Should you get more doses? When do you get doses? This vaccine over that vaccine. So there's a lot of misinformation and changing information that we are focused on correcting. We are focused on making sure we get to all the cultural groups that people relate to in those high density areas where there are the cold spots, so that people feel they have trustable sources to get real information, and not just information off some random social media site.
2: Yeah, thank you, Brittany. You know, as you're talking, you're reminding me about this important concept of geography uh, in uh, in public health. And I, I think it's it hasn't been more apparent than hearing COVID as we focused on these cold spots and hot spots of cases and what to do. We've used it both ways and uh, made a lot of maps here at the health department to help us focus some of these interventions. And you've uh, just discussed some of the ongoing challenges in terms of misinformation, vaccine hesitancy. But let me ask you this, as we Are now entering year three, as you mentioned, of the COVID response, what should we be doing? What are are you thinking personally about how the future of COVID and how we're going to address it with all these tools that you've been talking about?
1: Personally and professionally, I'm thinking what does endemic look like? What does the future look like? How do we live with COVID? Because we can't do this forever. All the measures that we did in the beginning and in the middle, they were the right thing at the right time. Figuring out what exactly is the right time to walk away from different measures has been really hard, but there are scientists and medical professionals and everybody who are trying to make the best advice possible for that. So personally and professionally, we have to live with COVID now. We have to continue to wash our hands, think carefully about the situations you're putting yourself in, and start getting this vaccine back to the traditional healthcare system. So yes, we are still running these special community pop-up clinics. We are starting to wind down our big mass vac sites and other vaccine sites, but there is lots of vaccine available in pediatricians' offices, family and primary healthcare offices, in the pharmacies, and that is where we are going. So that, that is the direction. This is good news, right? It's not bad news. It's great news. It means that our healthcare system is ready to take it on.
0: It is good news. And I think, you know, it's funny, like I I like to just sort of encapsulate a little bit about the dates of all this, right? Like one of the things I think about is, and I I might get my dates wrong, but I think I'm going to get right. So February 28th, 2020, our first patient was positive in Rhode Island. You know, one of the big points was vaccine number one, but December 14th, 2020, we had plenty of supply of vaccine by April 25th, 2021. So that was a big date for me as well. One of the other big dates is November 5th, 2021, when we started vaccinating kids 5 to 11. But it was interesting. Like, one of the things we talk about endemic, you know, and one of the things I really think about how bad, the the pandemic was the worst in Rhode Island around Martin Luther King Day weekend in 2022. It was just, that was when the hospitals were really stressed to to the most. But one of the things I really think about is it was soon after that, like really around February 2nd, around Groundhog's Day, Valentine's Day, those weeks, where you really could say, you know what, guys, it's a preventable, treatable disease. And it really lets us move into sort of that endemic plan. And endemic plan means the disease is stabilized. It's in our committee. And I really like the way you talk about like, moving the disease into the traditional practice of medicine. Because really, when you think about it, like, this is just one of the things I think is important to think about. It's like, it was a new disease for us. But quite frankly, we don't have many new diseases in our lifetime. Like when I think about the last new disease I had, it was when I was in medical school. There was this new disease called AIDS, HIV. But that was the last I remember, a brand new disease, you know. So there aren't really many new diseases. But our our species has had to deal with new disease after new disease after new disease. So this is just another new disease. And we, we've gotten quite a bit of experience with it. But it kind of makes me think a little bit like, you know, think about all that happened. Is there anything you think we could have done better? to prepare for COVID-19? you know, Not that you ever could envision anything like this, but like in retrospect, you think there's something we could have done that would have been better as far as preparation goes. And maybe the answer is it's too hard to tell, but any thoughts on that?
1: Truthfully, I'm not sure that we could have. I, I think that the country has some amazing surveillance systems, both to see what's going on worldwide and nationwide and within the state. So that's important. As much as we didn't have enough in stockpiles, we did have some stockpiles. I'm responsible for some of the ones here in Rhode Island. So we had stockpiles to at least start us off, not enough for long-term forever. And, and that's something we're gonna have to work on because you mentioned it before, You know, in the beginning, you, you really have to balance budget for, for what you're paying for the what if someday. Um, we have amazing plans that we were able to put into action. Uh, some people joked and called this sort of our Super Bowl. We've had this plan and we've trained and updated and exercised these emergency mass dispensing plans for over a decade and we get to use it. Um, we will certainly look at how that looks going forward for future events that take a long time. So we have plans, we have great relationships. We need to inc- and continue building on all of the new relationships that have started in this. And I think we need to, as a nation, figure out how to evaluate information in the future. That, that'll that be the hard part. There's no easy answer there.
2: Yeah, thank you. You know, I think that's a great question, Dr. McDonald. I'd be curious about your thoughts as well. I mean, I was just remembering, as you mentioned, back to 2020 here, and you know, I was remembering that uh, we still had people traveling the world when there was emerging pandemic. You know, one thing—the lesson that I've learned is maybe we should be a little more proactive about closing down borders early on. Uh, I remember we didn't even have a test, right? Do you remember we didn't have a test when COVID was first here? Uh, I think we could have been a little bit more aggressive, given that we knew there was this emerging threat uh, across the world. I think perhaps uh, some of the companies, if not the CDC and partners, uh, we could have sped that along a little bit more. I think the vaccine was an incredible success. So I want to highlight that. I think Brent, to your point about PPE as well. I mean, I remember hearing, you know, in the healthcare setting, right? We had my colleagues, myself, we were wearing, you know, the same mask for a week. I mean, it was ridiculous. So I think just being prepared and thinking about manufacturing processes and what we need to have inside our country internal, what we don't need to rely on other countries, things that we can leverage for us, uh, and and thinking about some of these manufacturing sectors and being less reliant. Uh, on, on uh, outside countries for some critical things uh, like PPE, like vaccine uh, development and, and manufacturing. Uh, those are kind of some of the big takeaways. I think we have learned a lot of lessons. I think to your point, Dr. McDonald, of course, there's many things that we just we could not anticipate that were totally outside of our control and totally outside of our control in Rhode Island. But I don't know, Dr. McDonald, I mean, you've been in this as we all have since the beginning. What are some of your thoughts about Really, the question is Is there anything we could have done different? Anything we could have done to prepare?
0: And I think really get to that large issue. Like one of the things that really resonated with me when you were talking is so much of this would have been so much easier if things were made in the United States and we weren't relying on things being manufactured outside the United States. And I think there's possible synergies in that for our future. You know, there's a little bit to be said for just. Being able to find things, because one of the things I remember was just when it came to masks in particular, like I remember being a little bit like sheepish saying, please put your mask in a brown paper bag and wear it as long as you can. That felt uncomfortable for healthcare providers, but that's what we were stuck with. And I think when I think about, you know, where we, we could be in the future, I really feel like that's one of our things we need to learn as a country is there's value in making things in our own country. There's national security issues there. Uh, there's also public p- health preparedness issues. One of the good things, though, that came out of the pandemic, though, when I I, I want to close on this note a little bit, is like one of the things I saw was just how rapidly everybody came together and not just whole of government, because that was great, but all the partners that came forward to like one of the things I saw in the state was in addition to whole of government, how the hospitals were helpful, how the nursing homes were helpful, how the laboratories were helpful, how so many different people came alongside to actually work together. Like, you know, a lot of good came out of working together and I think that's really something that's a positive note to end on. I want to thank Britain so much for you coming by and talking about medical countermeasures, because there certainly were a lot of medical countermeasures. One of the other things we got in the pandemic, too, was these new terms. Um, and countermeasure is a new term for some of us, which is a good thing. Um, but Stephanie, it's time to cue the music, uh, because as we close out our episode, it's time for our traditional final word from Dr. Chan. Dr. Chan,
2: what's the final word today? Great. Thank you, Dr. McDonald. Thank you again, Brendan, for, for joining us and for all your work behind the scenes uh, at the health department. You truly are one of the heroes uh, behind the scenes uh, throughout the pandemic. But in closing, I do want to leave everyone with a moment of zen to consider throughout the rest of your day. And here it is. It's an old Irish proverb. And believe it or not, I feel like I told this to three of my patients yesterday alone. A good laugh and a long sleep are the best cures in the doctor's book. I see you chuckling, Dr. McDonald. I'm sure you agree with me. Thank you all and be well.
0: I want to thank Stephanie Menders, our executive producer, Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, interim director of the Rhode Island Department of Health. Have a good and keep up the great.